Hi everyone and welcome to this next episode of our Brexit and Beyond podcast brought to you by the UK in a changing Europe and I'm delighted this week to have as a guest Professor Nicola McEwen from the University of Edinburgh. Hi Nicola. Hi. Now Nicola is one of a number of authors who've produced a briefing on the internal market bill which you'll be able to find uh, online next week and this seemed like a good moment to talk through not only the bill but also devolution more generally. So just to start at the very very beginning Nicola if I may, Mm -hmm. as far as the government's concerned what's, what's the internal market bill for when it comes to the devolved? governments? That's a very good question. Um, and In one sense, this administration and the Theresa May's administration have been concerned that when the UK left the EU and at the end of the transition period when we leave the internal market, that that might lead to new barriers to trade entering uh, within the UK between the devolved territories and uh, in, in England, essentially. So the internal market bill is one attempt to try to ensure that even if there are different regulations in the different parts of the UK, that they won't produce extra costs or extra barriers for for businesses because they'll still be able to trade freely. The problem is that there are different ways to address that problem, if indeed it's a real problem at all, and we just don't know yet. We have a really integrated uh, market in the UK and the governments have been working together uh, for a number of years now to try to identify where they might need to do things together, where they might need to cooperate more, and that's in a process called common frameworks. But the government's thinking, I think, around this bill is that they might miss something by that approach. And so they think of the internal market bill as a backstop, can you use that term, to sort of mop up anything that might fall through the cracks. Problem is, it is in effect quite a centralising measure and it is being done very much against the wishes of the devolved governments, certainly the devolved governments in in Wales and in Scotland. Okay, so I mean, actually in your briefing paper, you do stress the fact that you're not entirely convinced that uh, this was necessary. Now, sitting at the heart of the debate about the so-called internal market, and it might be an idea if you could explain to us what the hell the internal market is, because most of us thought it was an EU construction, not a UK one. But sitting at the heart of the provisions are these two principles, non-discrimination and mutual recognition. And I think it's true to say that between them, they have they create a situation which the devolved governments are, are pretty unhappy about. Can you just talk us through what they mean and why in combination they might have caused this displeasure? Sure. Well, let me go to your first question first, which was what are we talking about when we talk about an internal market because, uh, or the internal market? Because the governments don't mean the same thing when they're talking about this. And it's right to say that this idea of the UK internal market is a relatively new one. It's on the back of and um, in some ways reflecting the EU internal market and the fact that we are leaving it. Um, but the, the way in which it's conceived by the UK government is quite different from the, UK, uh, sorry, from the EU uh, internal market. In one sense, they're thinking of it as the whole of the relationships between uh, the different territories of the UK, the whole of the economic relationships. Uh, but an internal market is also about setting the rules that underpin that. And that's when we come to these two principles uh, of mutual recognition and non-discrimination. And essentially, the mutual recognition principle is to ensure that for a business or a service provider, a professional, if you are regulated in one part of the UK, then that's good enough. 
for you to trade freely in any part um, and equally around non-discrimination that businesses cannot be discriminated against or treated any differently uh, than local ones in any part of the UK. Now that sounds fair, well, that sounds reasonable, um, but the problem is that that really alters quite a lot what the devolved governments can do in the future when they're setting their own regulations. So let me give you an example. So let's say, um, that, well, this is quite a current example. The Welsh government um, and the Scottish government have been looking to extend what they do and have more ambitious proposals around single-use plastics. They want to include a wider range of products within that to uh, target to help uh, combat climate change as part of a broader ambition. Now, they can still continue to do that under this legislation, but they could only apply those things to goods that are produced in Scotland or Wales. They wouldn't apply to anything entering their markets from the rest of the UK because they would have already satisfied regulations elsewhere. So you can see already then it doesn't, ch it doesn't stop the devolved institutions from making their own laws, but it just limits what effect they can have. It limits the scope of that. Um, and that is quite a different approach to devolution. And you begin to see then, I think, why the devolved governments have been so concerned about it. And is one of the issues here the asymmetry in size between England and the others? That's to say the English market is so much bigger that that causes a particular problem? Absolutely and there's two aspects to the asymmetry. So yes there's a there's one of scale. Uh, the, the sheer size of the English market means that in terms of the amount of products and goods and services in circulation then obviously that, that matters. The, the, the size there matters uh, more, but also the market itself is a big market for goods being produced in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland too, to enter that market. So they will be keen to be competing on a level playing field. So even though the devolved institutions can continue to make laws, they can set higher standards for their own producers. They might be wary of doing so, or indeed be pressured against doing so, if that puts their own uh, businesses at a competitive disadvantage when they are competing against um, their counterparts from England. The other aspect of the asymmetry is that the UK government won't be as constrained uh, by these principles as the devolved governments. In theory, it's a, foreign, it, it's, it's a set of regulations that applies to uh, the four nations, if you want to use that term, but the UK parliament can always supersede its own legislation and in a way that the devolved parliaments cannot. This internal market bill it would be one of those protected enactments that enter into the devolved laws that prevent the devolved institutions from making any changes to them. So there's asymmetries economically and there's asymmetries constitutionally. Okay, and would it be fair to say, I mean, the British government has made great play of the fact that post-transition uh, and via the internal market bill, the devolved governments would be actually getting more powers. But is it fair to say that this is profoundly disingenuous? Because as you've just sort of intimated, many of their powers will have no real meaning if they can't be exercised because of those asymmetries. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a case to make uh, to suggest that the devolved institutions will get more powers by stint of us having left the European Union. Because in that, But that's nothing to do with this bill. That was to do with the EU withdrawal Act that was passed in 2018. So because there would no longer be an obligation to ensure that your laws are compatible with EU law, then in theory, the devolved institutions have a little bit more scope over those areas that were already devolved. But this bill um, adds a new constraint. So it does reduce the scope and the effect, the difference that those laws 
can make. And as you were saying, when it came to single-use plastics, do you think as a rule that one of the frustrations now is that it might be that in some of the devolved governments, there was a desire for higher regulatory standards than we have in England. And so they see this as not only, if you like, a power grab, but also raising the prospect of a kind of race to the bottom when it comes to standards, standards lower than they would like to have in place. Yes, I think that is a concern. And there's a concern that some of this is motivated by uh, the UK government's desire to have a free hand when it comes to trade negotiations um, and the concern there. And even though um, publicly the government has committed to, to higher standards, they haven't committed to that in law. And there is a concern that this is about having the freedom of manoeuvre uh, to, to have uh, reduced standards and there being nothing that the devolved governments can then do about it. And here's one of the interesting differences with the EU internal market as well. So in the EU internal market, you can have uh, laws and regulations that are distorting the market that do affect competition if you can justify them on the basis of environmental goals, public health goals, broader public policy goals, and that they are seen to be proportionate. There is very limited scope within the UK bill to have any of these kinds of justifications, indeed, not on public health grounds, uh, not on uh, environmental grounds. So that's also a frustration as well. It's much more constraining than EU internal market law. And just out of interest, uh, you mentioned the Delaware effect in the, in the briefing paper, but how, how does the situation ushered in by the internal market bill compare to the situation in other federal or quasi-federal states? I mean, it's, it's not unusual to have some sort of intergovernmental or legislative uh, underpinning for an economic union in a, in a federal state. I mean, most federal states have something like that. I think the difference uh, here is the way that this is being introduced. It's not being introduced or rushed through by agreement. It's very much in the face of the opposition of the devolved institutions. So normally we would expect a more collaborative process to get you towards an agreed consensus position um, of how you manage these differences, how you balance the, the, the desire that is shared by uh, the, all of the administrations to not have unnecessary barriers to trading, uh, but with um, also the opportunity to still carry on making policies that are in the interests of or, or in the preferences of the communities that each of the governments are serving. Um, and it's getting that balance right requires um, a degree of cooperation, collaboration, compromise. It's very difficult to see this working out well if it's done by imposition from the centre, because at the end of the day, disputes will arise, tensions will arise, and there has to be an intergovernmental process to try to avoid those as far as possible, but to resolve them when they do emerge. And this approach is making a, a more collaborative process through intergovernmental relations much more difficult. Now, you sort of brought us very neatly to the sort of bigger pic picture and the kind of broader context to this. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, intergovernmental relations mm -hmm. since the referendum of 2016. But actually, just as a sort of initial thought on this, just because of the role that EU membership played in sort of encasing our devolution settlement, wasn't it always the case, however the government in London behaved, that 
Brexit was going to lead to, and particularly the sort of Brexit we're going to have where we're outside the single market and the customs union, was always going to lead to a bun fight between the different governments in the United Kingdom because the devolution settlement had been so heavily predicated on membership in the first place. I think it's true to say that the devolution settlements were encased within our EU membership, but it's, I don't think we can reasonably say that they would have been written differently had we known that um, the, the UK would leave the EU. That, that's a sort of revisionist take on all of this. Um, but there's no doubt that leaving the EU and leaving the EU regulatory framework does pose some challenges, um, and, and it does make it make it clear that there is a need for the governments to manage the overlap between what is reserved and what is devolved. That idea that that was there at the outset of devolution, at least in the case of, of Scotland and Northern Ireland, it's a bit more complicated in Wales, but at the outset of devolution there was this idea that there were certain powers that were reserved to the UK Parliament and then everything else was devolved. And that was always something of an exaggeration because there was always overlaps. But Brexit and already the devolution settlements anyway and the changes around taxation were starting to blur the boundaries a lot more to make for more jagged edges and to, to reinforce the need to have more cooperation, more machinery uh, for managing these overlaps. Now, it's been known for quite a long time that the machinery that we have for intergovernmental relations in the UK is really not up to standard. It's not fit for purpose. And the governments have been working for the last few years on a review of all of that. Um, they haven't published anything yet. Um, I understand that some progress has been made, but I cannot see that it will be any easier to come to a resolution against this really tense and politicised background um, to which the bill has contributed greatly. But I don't think it was, I don't take that it was always going to be a bun fight. Um, what makes the bun fight even more likely, I suppose, is the politics around Brexit and the fact that it was a UK-wide decision um, that was not given consent within Scotland and Northern Ireland. And obviously Northern Ireland also has the internal divisions and the border issue to, to, to cope with there. But I think the a government, the UK government, could have done more to secure what political science we usually refer to as losers' consent. So to, to bring along with them the, the areas which are partly territorial, case of Scotland, but also plenty within England who did not sign up to this. But there could have been more efforts made to bring those people along, to help them consent to the process, to have compromises in there. Um, that helped to build consensus. And that isn't the approach um, that either of the governments that have led this uh, has, has taken, but it's definitely not the approach of the current administration. We'll come back to that in a minute in, in terms of how the government could have acted differently or what, what it has done wrong in the context of intergovernmental relations. But I mean, was it really ever going to be possible to secure losers' content, consent in a context in which it seemed clear that the SNP were determined to weaponise Brexit. I mean, it might be that the government proved a sort of unwitting stooge to the SNP in this, but the SNP were going to weaponise this anyway because of the simple fact that, that Scotland voted Remain, weren't they? But also, um, in, in the early months post-Brexit, in the immediate aftermath, Nicola Sturgeon's First Minister reintroduced independence and an independence referendum, without a doubt. But in the months that followed from that, there was a window of opportunity to do this differently um, where um, the Scottish government 
issued its proposals around um, Scotland's place in Europe that tried to find a position that could enable Scotland, if not the UK as a whole, to maintain those relationships. Their preference was, and at one point they did sort of accept the inevitability of Brexit, but not the inevitability of leaving the single market. So there are, there are different forms that Brexit could have taken that could have helped to, if not secure consent for the process, to minimise the sense of alienation from the process. But we are now in the position, I don't know quite what position that we're in, uh, even this close to the end of transition, but um, it's, it's looking like either an, a, a no-deal Brexit or, or a, a very loose relationship that we might have referred to as a hard Brexit. It's still looking like that but that wasn't inevitable oh absolutely and 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 procedurally as well as substantively the sort of mechanisms of intergovernmental relations have not been used as well as they could have been since that referendum would you say that actually no no so if again going back to the beginning of Theresa may's administration there was a commitment to involve the devolved governments in the process and it had looked quite promising at one point there was a, a special committee called the joint ministerial committee for european union negotiations that was set up and the idea was to seek a common approach and Theresa may was quite open about wanting to do that and that promised a different kind of intergovernmental relations to what we had had before problem is having raised expectations it singularly failed to deliver on those and so the devolved governments have felt excluded from the process and not even being told what's going on before they read it in the paper sometimes and and that that raises the the hackles it it makes for a, a much more frustrating process so there's very much been the sense that um, external relations and the negotiations are matters for the UK government alone um, and we will let you know what's going on but not to not to engage you in that process and it didn't have to be that way we've seen again with from other countries where there are mechanisms there are ways and precedents for involving um, sub-state governments like our devolved governments in in the process and helping to if not shape it then at least to get a sense of being able to um, influence it and and feed the priorities in in a way that's meaningful and that just did not happen and of course this sort of growing sense of political frustration you could argue was being mirrored in shifts in public opinion i can't let you go without mentioning that uh, ipsos Mori survey that came out a couple of weeks ago that showed a pretty significant uh, lead for yes over no in terms of voting intentions if there were to be another uh, indie ref now has opinion shifted significantly during these last four years do you think do you think this is just a one-off the dangers of talking about one poll or has there been a more sort of systematic shift there has been a systematic shift i mean i wouldn't want to put too much focus on one poll that says 58 percent because it does look a little bit out of step from from some of the others including one that was published around about the same time but but still we've now had nine nine polls in a row that give a, a reasonably clear majority for yes in a hypothetical independence referendum and that's never been the case before this is support for independence in a sustained way at historically high levels so yes there's definitely been a shift we started to see a shift last year and that shift was explained by in, in part by brexit so it was a shift of remainers essentially who had voted no in 2014 and were starting to drift towards a yes position and you saw mm-hmm. you saw some of the some of the movement in the other direction as well. It's just that there were far more remainers in Scotland than there were leavers. So 
the effect or the net effect was a gain for yes. The shifts that we've seen this year that have pushed it much more into a sustained majority for yes are not particularly explained by Brexit and we don't know enough from the, the surveys that are there to know what explaining them but it does seem to be in the context of context of COVID and the different perceptions of governments responding to that. And now, I mean, as, as we get towards the end, I'm going to ask you the really sort of unfair questions, I suppose, mm -hmm. which is to do with what might happen from here on sure. in. It looks likely that the SNP are going to secure a majority on the back of the elections in May of next year. And it looks likely that they will do so on the back of a promise to hold a second referendum. But of course, that referendum is in the gift of the government in London. What do you think happens if events turn out like that? from there on yeah it's, it's very I mean obviously we're, we're still a ways away from from mm. an election so I don't see anything as inevitable other than very difficult to see anything other than an SNP win but remember elections to the Scottish Parliament are conducted by proportional representation so it's actually extremely difficult for a single party to secure an overall majority but if the opinion polls are accurate and remain uh, as they are now then that does look like the the, the likely outcome of all of this um and the honest answer to your question is i don't know um because you're right to say that if the if the scottish government was to hold a referendum it would have to legislate for a referendum and legislation on the constitution is a reserved matter so last time around there was a negotiated agreement to transfer the power to legislate over a constitutional referendum temporarily, and that was the basis of the 2014 referendum. Mm -hmm. If that process was to be repeated, it would require the consent of the UK Parliament, and that doesn't look like it is forthcoming. And I think that the, the SNP's hope is that um, the political momentum and the mandate is strong enough to make it very difficult to continue to say no, but there's nothing legally that would require the UK government or the UK parliament to grant that authority. There may be other options, but none of them are very attractive options and it's certainly not what the Scottish government is wanting to do because as we have seen from 2016 referendum, even if you win a vote, that's only ever the first step of a long process and you need uh, this you need the sense that the vote will be recognized by the UK government in the first instance um, that they would negotiate on the back of a yes vote and that it may be recognized by the international community as well SNP does definitely not want to go down a Catalan road of acting unilaterally and um, so it is process wise it's very difficult but I think what they will want to do is secure enough of a mandate and uh, enough support to make it difficult to ignore. And I don't think that the support is there just yet. The, the sustained majority support is, is one thing, but it's quite another to come to the conclusion that independence is the settled will uh, of the Scottish people. And that's a phrase that was used about devolution or about a Scottish parliament, actually, um, mm -hmm. before it was established. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet with independence and this rising support that we've been seeing is in the context where the independence prospectus is not being presented nor being scrutinised. And there are challenges um, that weren't apparent last time that are the, are the result of Brexit um, that the SNP and the pro-independence groups would have to confront. Um, and we're not having that debate just now in the context of COVID. There's no debate going on about independence at all, actually. Uh, and yet we're still seeing this rising levels of support. 
Well, I think the next time we have you on, we'll definitely try and explore some of those issues around the border in the context of Brexit and what that might mean. But I mean, if I can hazard one prediction now, I think you're going to have a very, very interesting few months ahead as you uh, try and track all this. Nicola, thanks ever so much for coming on today. I thought that was utterly fascinating and I learned a lot. You're welcome. You're welcome.